Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Tuesday, February 28. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, Cedar Rapids teen pleads to fatally stabbing parents. Orton faces two life sentences with the possibility for parole. This story is by Trish Mahaffey. An 18-year-old admitted Monday to stabbing his parents with a knife and then picking up an axe to kill his mother when he realized she hadn't died from the stab injuries. October 14, 2021. Ethan Alexander Orton, who was set to go to trial today, made a surprising last-minute plea to both first-degree murder charges. The hearing Monday had been previously set because the medical examiner was going to testify via Zoom and not in person, and Orton had to give his consent on the record. But when 6th District Judicial Judge Ian Thornhill started the hearing, he said he understood Orton was pleading to the charges. Thornhill, during during the hearing, told Orton more than once that jurors were set to come in for jury selection today if he wanted to have a jury trial, but Orton said he understood and continued with the plea. Orton was polite when answering the judge's questions and didn't show any emotion during the hearing. Orton, who was 17 at the time of the murders, admitted to fatally stabbing his father, Casey Arthur Orton, 42, and mother, Misty Scott Slade, 41, in their home at 361 Carnaby Drive Northeast in 2021. He also admitted to the elements of first-degree murder, acting with malice aforethought, deliberately, willfully, and knowingly committing the acts, and having specific intent to kill. The first Excuse me, the two first-degree murder pleas carry a life sentence without the possibility of parole. But because Orton was 17, a juvenile, he will have the chance for parole. The Iowa Supreme Court banned life sentences for juveniles in 2016, following the U.S. Supreme Court's same decision in 2012. Assistant Lynn County Attorney Mike Harris and Lynn County Chief Public Defender Doug Davis both said the plea agreement for Orton is that the two charges will run concurrently and that he must serve 50 years in prison before being eligible for parole. Judge Thornhill has discretion on sentencing and may not agree to the recommended sentencing. Harris, after the hearing, said he couldn't provide much detail, such as to the motive, but he added that some additional information may be released during sentencing. We are pleased that he is taking responsibility for the crimes and pleaded to the first-degree charges because we believe this was a first-degree murder case, Harris said. Davis didn't immediately respond to an email request for comment. Orton was found competent to stand trial, but planned to claim he was suffering from diminished capacity at the time he stabbed his parents. Also on the front page, this story by Emily Anderson, arrest made in fatal stabbing of Devona Walker. Voluntary manslaughter charge comes after protests. Two months after a mother of three was stabbed to death and after social justice advocates repeatedly called for charges, A Cedar Rapids man was arrested Monday and faces charges of voluntary manslaughter and disorderly conduct in her death. Shane Teslick, age 37, was taken into custody in a different county in Iowa in connection with the January 6th killing of Devona Walker, age 29. He will be transferred to Lynn County in the coming days, a news release from the Lynn County Attorney's Office states. 
A coalition of activist groups has been protesting regularly since the stabbing. On February 16, the group put out a news release that named Teslik as Walker's killer. Though the coalition has previously omitted Shane Teslik's name, this shift is in loving solidarity with the family of Devona Walker. It is unjust for his name to remain absent from factual reports, while her name has been subjected to accusations and harmful stereotypes, the group wrote. A video of the incident circulated on social media appears to show Walker, who is black, arguing with Teslik, who is white, and a white woman. In the video, Teslik calls Walker a racial slur, and then a fight breaks out between the three of them, during which Teslik appears to stab Walker. Police were called to the scene in the 2100 block of North Town Court, northeast, at about 6.45 p.m. January 2nd, where they found Walker. She was transported to a hospital but died from her injuries. If convicted, Teslik could face up to 10 years in prison for the voluntary manslaughter charge. Regarding the public criticism of the investigation, I support the constitutional right of citizen and activist groups to express their con concerns about the functioning of the criminal justice system, Lynn County Attorney Nick Baymax said in a statement Monday. The decision to file these criminal charges was in no way influenced by any protest or demand for arrest. It was solely based on our review of the facts of the case and the applicable law. To be abundantly clear, allowing public pressure or a public demand for arrest to influence the decision to file criminal charges would be highly inappropriate. Multiple protests have been held since the stabbing, including a town hall event during which a local lawyer discussed the possibility of stand-your-ground laws being evoked in the case. Monday's release acknowledged that the Cedar Rapids Police Department and the Lynn County Attorney's Office considered the possibility that Teslik would claim self-defense or defense of others and that the possibility of those claims was part of the reason they felt more information was needed before the arrest. Abbreviating that article and moving on to the Iowa Today page, this story is by Thomas Geyer. Marion, sixth grade speller, heads to the National Bee. Holstein, that was the word for Lindsay Jensen, Jessen, a sixth grader from Marion at the 42nd Annual Dispatch Argus Regional Spelling Bee. Lindsay outlasted 39 other participants in the event Saturday at Centennial Hall on the campus of Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. She earned an expense-paid trip to Washington, D.C. to compete in the Scripps National Spelling Bee, which runs May 28 to June 2. My favorite subject is math, Lindsay said after the tournament, adding that she is homeschooled by her mother, Carla, who has a degree in elementary education from the University of Iowa. She also will compete March 23rd in Iowa's Math Counts state competition in Ankeny, she said. Describing how she studied for Saturday's competition, Lindsay said she and her mom read through the list of words and then she would call them out to me. Any ones I missed, I would practice them until I got it right. Lindsay added that what helps her is the act, fact that I love to read. Carla Jessen said a bit of help was the World Cup app on the Scripps National Spelling Bee website. And excuse me, that's the Word Club app. 
We love that one, Jessen said, because I don't know how to pronounce some of these words. We didn't start studying until well into the school year, and we downloaded the app. I was looking up the words and trying to write down the correct pronunciations so I could remember how to say it, and the app pronounced it for us. The more we used the app, the better we liked it because it bookmarks the ones you missed and the ones you need to practice. Jessen said she had homeschooled Lindsay since she was three years old and that Lindsay says she wants to be an engineer. Second place went to Partha Saridi Calreddy, who is in sixth grade at Hopewell Elementary in Bettendorf. Partha Saridi was one of several contestants who asked questions about the words and when spelling acted as if he was writing it on the palm of his hand. He said it's a tool that works. But he also used other tools offered in the rules, as did other contestants, such as asking for a word's definition and to hear its use in a sentence. To study for the contest, Partha Sarati said, I use the Word Club app to type out the words and practice them every day. He added, my favorite subject also is math, and when asked what he might like to study in college, probably computer science. Third place went to Matthew Winkler, who is in sixth grade at Mount Vernon Middle School. Danine Glasscock, the coordinator for the event, said of Saturday's contestants, every single one of them was bright. The contestants were given a list of words to study, she said, and then there was a list of words they did not get to study in case the competition is tough between the contestants. We did not get into the words that they hadn't studied, Glasscock said. They were all from the study guide that they got. Glasscock said the spelling list was closely guarded and the rules are strict, she said. We're not allowed to live stream the event to protect the integrity of the word list. Some places haven't had their bees, so it's closely guarded. Lindsay Jessen took home a large trophy and her family will receive travel expenses to take her to compete in Washington. Glasscock said the competition in Washington would begin with the preliminaries May 30, with the finals ending June 1st. The competition is not by age, and Lindsay will be competing against other regional champions, and there will be more than 200 spellers there. Also on the Iowa Today page, Cedar Rapids police make an arrest in an August shots fired incident. This story by Emily Anderson. A Cedar Rapids man was arrested last week in relation to a shots fired incident in August, according to a news release from the Cedar Rapids Police Department. James Kellop Jr., age 20, is charged with intimidation with a dangerous weapon and conspiracy to commit a forcible felony. According to a criminal complaint, a victim identified Kellop as the driver of a bronze SUV that was driving alongside another vehicle on Interstate 380 near H Avenue on August 24 when a passenger leaned out the window of Kellop's vehicle and shot at the other vehicle. No injuries were reported. Police were called to the scene shortly after 5 p.m and found a shell casing that matched a shell casing found at a different shots fired scene where Kellop was believed to have been. Data on Kellop's cell phone also showed it was in the area around the time of the shooting, the criminal complaint states. Cedar Rapids police said the case remains under investigation, 
but would not confirm whether additional arrests are expected. A warrant for Kellop's arrest was issued on February 7, and he was arrested Thursday. He is being held in the Lynn County Correctional Center on a $30,000 bond. In this story by Emily Anderson, no injuries reported in Iowa City shots fired incident Sunday. Iowa City police are investigating a shots fired incident that occurred Sunday morning at 118 South Clinton Street, according to a news release from the police department. Police received a report of shots fired at 12.20 a.m. Sunday. Officers found a single shell casing at the scene. No injuries have been reported. The University of Iowa put out a hawk alert shortly after the call, warning students to avoid the area while police investigated. Iowa City Police posted photos from nearby surveillance cameras on their Facebook page of men who are people of interest in the investigation. The department is asking for the public's help locating the men pictured. Anyone with information is asked to contact the police department at 319-356-5275 or call Crime Stoppers at 319-358-TIPS. A Southern Iowa man has been arrested in Cedar Rapids on kidnapping and child endangerment charges. This story by Emily Anderson. A man from Southern Iowa's Mystic was arrested last week in Cedar Rapids on charges he held his girlfriend and their infant son captive with a knife. Russell Thomas Clark, age 39, is charged with two counts each of second-degree kidnapping, child endangerment, and obstruction of emergency communications, as well as one count each of domestic abuse assault, general assault, assault while participating in a felony, first-degree harassment, and interference with official acts. The 13-year-old daughter of Clark's girlfriend called 911 about 9.20 a.m. Friday after Clark hit her and she escaped to a neighbor's house in the 1200 block of 15th Street Southeast, according to a criminal complaint. Police arrived to find Clark had barricaded himself, his girlfriend, and their infant son in an upstairs bedroom. He broke two cell phones to prevent the woman, the woman from calling for help, the complaint states. He had a knife which he held to the woman's throat, threatening to kill her if police approached. The Cedar Rapids crisis negotiation team attempted to talk with Clark and get him to come out peacefully, but eventually a special response team went into the house and used a stun gun to subdue and arrest him, according to police. No one was injured in the incident. Clark is being held in the Lynn County Jail without bond. A no-contact order has been filed on behalf of the woman. And from the Capitol Notebook, month of family leave for mother advances in the house. This is a Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau article. State employees who give birth would have access to one month of paid family leave and partners would have access to one week of paid leave under legislation advanced Monday by state lawmakers. The proposal is one element of legislation put forward in a broader health care bill by Governor Kim Reynolds. In the Iowa House, majority Republicans are tackling the governor's proposals on a piece-by-piece basis. A state employee who adopts a child also would have access to four weeks of paid family leave under the proposed legislation. 
Under current policy, state workers who give birth must first have exhausted all vacation and sick days before being eligible for, eligible for unpaid family leave. The governor's legislative liaison told state lawmakers during the legislative hearing on the proposal Monday. Governor Reynolds is committing, committed to making Iowa the best state in which to live, work, and raise a family, said Molly Severn, the governor's legislative liaison. As a benefit to better support our workforce and their families, the governor proposes to offer state employees paid maternity and paternity leave. Lobbyists for two groups, Iowa ACEs 360 and the American Heart Association, spoke in favor of the bill during Monday's hearing, and both recommended lawmakers expand the proposal to six weeks of paid leave, which is recommended by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists. In total, 14 agencies or state agencies supported the bill, and none have registered in opposition, according to state lobbying records. The legislative panel of two Republicans and one Democrat advanced the proposal, House Study Bill 201, which is now eligible for consideration by the full House Committee on Commerce. A year after enacting stricter requirements for receiving unemployment benefits, Senate Republicans advanced a bill that would require Iowans to conduct more job searches to get them. Senate Study Bill 1159 passed out of the Chamber's Workforce Committee, making it eligible for further consideration and floor debate this session on a 7-5 to party-line vote with Democrats opposed. The bill would require a person applying for unemployment benefits to complete four to six job searches a week to earn benefits, depending on the number of job openings published by the state's workforce agency. The more jobs available, the more work searches one must complete. To maintain eligibility for unemployment benefits, Iowans currently are required to complete four reemployment activities each week, three of which must include job applications, according to Iowa Workforce Department. The proposal also reduces maximum weekly benefit amounts for out-of-work Iowans with three or more dependents. Currently, the more dependents a worker has increases the maximum allowable benefits. Bill sponsor Senator Adrian Dickey, a Republican from Packwood, said the bill streamlines and provides clarity to unemployment benefits, work search requirements, and providing a list of activities that qualify, which mirrors the services and opportunities offered by Iowa Workforce Development. Democrats and labor groups argue it needlessly reduces benefits and introduces barriers for Iowans who lost their job through no fault of their own in accessing a public safety net. Unemployed workers in Iowa now receive 10 fewer weeks of state unemployment benefits under a new law that took effect last year. The law reduced the length of state unemployment benefits from 26 to 16 weeks making Iowa the fourth state with 16 weeks or fewer of state unemployment benefits. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial today is a reprint from the New York Daily News, Derail the Politics Over Trains Bill. Unless Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg were supposed to be recalibrating the hot-bearing detectors on Norfolk Southern's trains, it's hard to blame them for the disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. 
The derailment close to the Pennsylvania border spilled more than 100,000 gallons of highly flammable vinyl chloride. And Donald Trump, who showed up in East Palestine on Wednesday, ever eager to exploit an incident for his own purposes, also wasn't to blame for having lifted some rail regulations when he was in the White House, as the Biden administration suggests. The Obama rule, mandating advanced brakes and speed restrictions for trains with large volumes of flammable liquids, would have made no difference. Accidents do happen. In this case, as laid out in the preliminary findings of the National Transportation Safety Board, as Buttigieg was making his own visit to the area, the sensors installed in the railbed to alert crews of passing trains about overheating bearings did exactly as they were set to do. An alarm goes off when the temperature of the passing bearing exceeds 170 degrees Fahrenheit above the ambient air. For such a warm but non-critical situation, crews are to stop and inspect the equipment. A difference of 200 degrees or more is critical and the hot car must be removed from the train. On the night of February 3, when it was just 10 degrees out, the bearings on Railcar 23 on the train with 149 cars was measured at 38 degrees warmer than the air. Then, 10 miles later, 23 was 103 degrees warmer, so no alarm tripped. But as the next detector, 20 miles up the line, the alarm rang as the bearings on 23 were 253 degrees hotter than the surroundings. The crew braked and stopped the train as several cars derailed, including five tank cars with vinyl chloride. While the railroad and the feds should have moved faster on the cleanup and aiding the community, the rail safety fix should be to connect the rail bed detectors so they pick up sudden temperature increases in the bearings. And again, that's a reprint from the New York Daily News. The guest column today is Legislators Should Act on Copay Issues, and this is written by Tom Green. More than 75% of adults in the United States think the costs of prescription drugs are unaffordable, and nearly a third say they haven't taken their medication as prescribed due to costs. As a former state senator and a former pharmacist, I am well aware of this conflict. I, have, I was one of the few health care workers representing Iowans and can attest that these complications are top of mind for many families and caregivers. High health care costs, coupled with rising inflation in so many other areas, can create a struggle to choose between needed medications and other essentials. We've seen health care costs increase over the past few decades, driven in large part by the research and development of new drugs and therapies to manage chronic, life-limiting diseases such as cancer, diabetes, lupus, and cystic fibrosis. These new treatments have transformed patients' lives, making their diseases manageable and extending their life expectancy by decades. But for those benefits to be realized, the new treatments to be accessible and affordable to those who need them. Though, as a pharmacist, it was not uncommon to have customers come in with coupons or vouchers provided by copay assistance programs, which had been funded by charitable foundations or even drug manufacturers. 
They helped a great deal by bringing the out-of-pocket costs in line with what patients could afford. And not only did the assistants provide lessen the patient's copay at the counter, it also would count toward fulfilling the patient's out-of-pocket obligations. Unfortunately, insurers and pharmacy benefit managers, known as PBMs, found a loophole in laws meant to ensure people have access to life-saving medicine, which has resulted in them classifying most treatments as non-essential, even when there are no alternative or generic options available. For all drugs or therapies labeled non-essential, PBMs don't have to count third-party patient assistance toward a patient's co-pays and out-of-pocket limits. Insurance is happy to collect the money from drug manufacturers and charities meant to support patients, but recipients still are on the hook for thousands more before they reach their out-of-pocket maximum. Thankfully, lawmakers around the country have taken notice of this issue. Sixteen states have passed legislation banning this practice, ensuring financial assistance meant to help pay for medication and reduce the financial burden on patients actually accomplishes both of these goals. Iowa should take notice. Even in Washington, the Help Ensure Lower Patient, known as HELP, Copays Act, was introduced last year and had dozens of co-sponsors from both sides of the aisle, but unfortunately, it has not passed yet. As Iowa continues to make commitments to wellness, we must not forget that the access and affordability of crucial medicines is a fundamental need for the most vulnerable in our state. The legislature needs to put an end to copay accumulator programs that have harmed our families, friends, and neighbors. We need to reach out to the members of the Iowa delegation and ask them to address these critical health care measures. Again, that is submitted by Tom Green of Burlington, who is a former state senator and a retired pharmacist. We have one community letter today, Religious Iowans Should Reject School Vouchers. Are religious congregations going to take public money for their private religious schools? Whether or not the politicians in power care about maintaining a firm boundary between church and state, religious communities should care. Many Americans are descendants of people who came here seeking religious freedom. Would those ancestors look kindly on us weakening the bulwark between church and state? I am in favor of religious groups having the freedom to run their own schools. Religious schools can and should raise funds to enroll students from poor families. However, public money should not be used to support religious ministries. We already give religious groups generous tax breaks to allow them to raise funds free from government interference. We must not cross the line of using public money to pay for the teaching of religious beliefs in private schools. Diverting public money to private religious schools violates the spirit of separation between church and state and does nothing to make urgent improvements to the public schools that over 480,000 Iowa students currently attend. As a person of faith, I cannot support this policy. Religious freedom means religious responsibility. We have a responsibility to be good stewards of religious freedom and to be good neighbors to others who don't share our religious beliefs. Private school vouchers undercut both of those basic principles. 
I hope all people of faith in Iowa will stand against private school vouchers. And that letter today is signed by Harold Page Jameson from West Branch. You're listening to the reading in the Cedar Rapids Gazette today on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Today is Tuesday, February 28. Now we turn to the obituary page, starting with the short notices. First, from Cedar Rapids, Evelyn May Pesca, 83, formerly of Marengo, died Sunday, February 26th. The Kloster Funeral Home in Marengo is in charge of arrangements. From Central City, Benita Josephine, known as Bonnie Brower Johnston, age 79, died Thursday, February 16th. Phillips Funeral Home of Vinton is assisting the family. In Elgin, David Edward Judge III, 73, died Sunday, February 26th. Leonard Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service. In Independence, Betty Jean Greenwood Wilson, 91, died Thursday, February 23. The Reef Family Center is assisting the family. In Iowa City, Tracy Fitch, age 62, died Sunday, February 26. Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service is in charge. In Marion, Lori Glish, age 60, died February 24. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. From Shellsburg, Thomas Charles Coder, 81, died Friday, February 24. Van Steen Heist Tea and Funeral Home in Vinton is assisting the family. In Sigourney, Belva Hollingsworth, age 98, died Saturday, February 25. The Home Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. And in one other death, Leah Martin, age 71, of Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, died February 25. Thornburg Growl Funeral Home and Cremation Service is in charge. Turning now to the regular notices, starting in Marion, Bethel J. Rinderknecht, age 91, passed away Sunday, February 26th at the Village Ridge Assisted Living in Marion. Funeral service for Bethel will be at 1 p.m. on Friday, March 3 at St. Paul's Lutheran, 915 27th Street in Marion. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 on Thursday, March 2nd at Cedar Memorial Funeral Home, Burial at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to St. Paul's Lutheran Church, 915 27th Street in Marion, or the Alzheimer's Association. From Cedar Rapids, John Billsland, age 78, died February 25th. Graveside services will be held at 1 p.m. Saturday, March 11, in Czech National Cemetery with military rites. Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids is in charge of arrangements. In Cedar Rapids, Edna May Pizik, age 97, died Wednesday, February 22nd at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids after a short illness. Funeral services will be at 10 a.m. Thursday, March 2nd at St. Jude Catholic Church, Cedar Rapids, with the Reverend Nick March officiating. Friends may visit with the family beginning at 9 a.m. at the church. Visitation is from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, March 1st at TN Funeral Home with a prayer service at 3.30. Memorials to the family in Edna's memory will be directed to various charities. 
Tian Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. From Victor, Alice Marie Demeyer Van Queckelberg. On Thursday, March 2nd, please join us celebrating Alice's wonderful life. The rosary begins at 10.30 a.m., followed by the funeral mass at 11 a.m., and lunch and visiting family in St. Bridget's Parish Hall. Memorials may go to St. Bridget's Catholic Church Air Condition Fund or the Calvary Cemetery Fund. In Cedar Rapids, Marilyn R. Perazil Lampy, age 82, passed away surrounded by her loved ones Saturday, February 25, at Unity Point St. Luke's Inpatient Hospice in Cedar Rapids. Visitation is from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, March 1st, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home in Cedar Rapids. Funeral Mass is at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, March 2nd, at St. Ludmilla Church, Cedar Rapids. Private family burial will take place at St. Joseph's Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital. Murdoch Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. From Leonardtown, Maryland, Marlene Doris Jan Potter, born February 16, 1933 in Hills, Iowa, and raised in Iowa City, died at age 89 on January 27th in Leonardtown, Maryland. Cremation was held and memorial services will be at a later date. Brinsfield Funeral Home in Leonardtown, Maryland was in charge of arrangements. In Monticello, Shane J. Wilson, age 68, died Saturday, February 25th at the Monticello Nursing and Rehabilitation Center. Graveside services with military honors will be held at Oakwood Cemetery in Monticello, 11 a.m. Friday, March 3rd, with a celebration of life to follow at the Monticello Eagles Club. Kramer Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. In Cedar Rapids, Margaret Christine Falcon Kogel passed away February 24. Visitation will take place at the Cedar Memorial Westside Chapel on Thursday, March 2nd from 4 to 6 p.m. with a wake service at 6 p.m. A funeral mass will be held at St. John's Church Friday, March 3 at 10 a.m. Cedar Memorial Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. In Cedar Rapids, Richard Leland Height, age 77, passed away Saturday, February 25th. A private inurnment will take place at the Cedar Memorial Park Mausoleum. Online condolences can be left at cedarmemorial.com. In Cedar Rapids, Gary Joseph Mulholland, age 74, passed away February 10 at his home. Private family services will be held at a later date. Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids is in charge of arrangements. From Quasquaton, Marvin Dwayne Morris passed away February 26, 2023. A celebration of life will be held Friday, March 10 at Wolfie's Wapsie Outback in Quasquaton starting at 3 p.m. with military rites at 4 p.m. Memorials may be directed to Cedar Rock American Legion Post number 434. The Reef Family Center Funeral Home and Crematory is in charge of arrangements. You can leave a condolence or a memory online at reeffamilycenter.com. And from Marion, Sheila Colleen Murray Siegel, age 85, 
died Saturday, February 25th, at home, surrounded by family. Visitation will be 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, March 2, at Murdoch Funeral Home in Marion, with a vigil service at 6.30 p.m. Mass of Christian Burial at 10.30 a.m. Friday, March 3, at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Marion, with the Rev. Timothy Siegel presiding, and the Rev. David O'Connor and the Rev. Bernie Grady concelebrating. An additional visitation at 9.30 a.m. Burial will follow at Mount Calvary Cemetery. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. And turning now to the sports page, in girls' state basketball, Vinton Shellsburg upsets the champs. He told you so, this story by Jeff Linder. Before Vinton Shellsburg's first state tournament game in 24 years, coach Rich Hazeman could be heard in the Wells Fargo Arena Tunnel announcing to a bystander, we're winning this game. Hazeman believed, the Vikettes believed, and by golly, they did it. Number 10, Vinton Shellsburg overcame a rocky start, made hay at the free throw line, and stunned number one Esterville Lincoln Central 54-46 to in a Class 3A quarterfinal at the Girls State Basketball Tournament last night at Wells Fargo Arena. With all due respect to ELC's nickname, the Midgets, the Vikettes at 18-7 and seven were giant killers, snapping the defending 3A champions win streak at 38 games. We knew we were going to win, Ashley Meyer said. Everyone out there doubted us, but we wanted it more, and they hadn't played the same teams we've played. Vinton Shellsburg earned its first state tournament win since a 1996 3A semifinal victory over Washington, Iowa. The Vikettes will face number four Benton Community with a record of 22 and 3 in a semifinal at 1.30 p.m. on Thursday. Benton topped the Vikettes twice in the regular season, but the Vikettes are relishing their underdog status. It didn't look good early. The Vikettes were one of 13 in the first quarter, and the Midgets led 14 to 2. We took a deep breath, shook off the nerves, and played our game, Alyssa Griffith said. By halftime, it was a game again with the Vikettes within 20 to 16. It was 35 to 29 entering the fourth quarter. Then they pounced. Kaylee Burke's basket on an inbounds play gave Vinton Shellsburg a 38-37 lead with 5.53 left, and the Vikettes never trailed again. Jordan Stokes' free throw tied it at 43-43 with 1.58 left. Griffith scored on a drive, then Julia Johnson did the same, and the Vikettes held a 47-43 lead with a minute left. Hillary Rushy's three-pointer made it 47-46 at the 48-second mark, and then the Vikettes closed it out with seven of eight free throws down the stretch. If we took care of the ball, got to the fourth quarter, and made it a tight game, I felt we were going to win, Hazeman said. Vinton Shellsburg made 24 of 32 foul shots, ELC 11 of 24. Hazeman talks to us all the time about poise, Abby Davis said. We relaxed out there and just played like it was open gym. How's this for poise? The Vikettes turned it over just nine times. Griffith finished with 17 points to lead all scorers and grabbed 10 rebounds. 
Myers added 12 points, Davis 11. Briley Bruce snagged 12 boards. Rushy paced ELC with 11 points. Both of the Stokes sisters tallied 10. It is state tournament time, and here's a look at today's quarterfinal schedule. In Class 4A, number 1, Dallas Center Grimes plays Glenwood. Number 4, Ballard faces number 5, Decorah. Number 2, North Polk plays number 7, Clear Creek Amana. And number 3, Sioux City Helan plays number 6, Cedar Rapids Xavier. This class has no clear favorite. Dallas Center Grimes carries the number one tag into the tournament for the second straight year. The Mustangs have won nine straight games and returned two key starters. Decorah's three previous appearances were highlighted by semifinal finishes in 2000 and 2007. In Class 2A, today, number one, Dyke New Hartford plays number 15, Applington Parkersburg. Number four, Sibley O'Cheadon plays number five, Iowa City Regina. And on Wednesday, number two, Central Lion plays number nine, Panorama. On Wednesday, also number three, Eddieville EBF plays number eight, Pocahontas area. Two-time defending champion Dyke New Hartford wears the favorite tag again, though it's not as a prohibitive favorite. The Wolverines are tops in 2A in both offense and defense. Turning now to the community page, here are some things to do today. Device Advice is a student volunteer group from the University of Iowa that will offer guidance on all things technology. So bring your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or other device and your questions to the Iowa City Public Library at 123 South Lynn Street in Iowa City. That takes place from 4 to 6 p.m. and that is free. In the literature event, meet the author Bex Hearn. On August 10, 2020, Iowa was hit by a derecho. To process the damage and document the beloved neighborhoods she grew up in, Bex Hearn grabbed her camera and set out to capture them before all the trees disappeared. What started out as a way to comprehend and deal with grief became a community project that tied individuals and neighborhoods together. Her book is called Eulogy for Trees, and she will present a program at the History Center, 800 2nd Avenue in Cedar Rapids at 6 p.m. Cost is $5 for members and $7 for general admission. Lynn County Master Gardener Linda Hinsman will present Container Gardening on the Cheap Without Breaking the Bank. This class takes place at 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. at the Hiawatha Public Library, 150 West Hillman Street in Hiawatha. This class will give tips and tricks to economize everything from the container, soil, and fertilizer to the spectacular plants that you'll grow, and that is free. And in the theater category, Million Dollar Quartet. An extraordinary twist of fate brought Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, and Elvis Presley together at Sun Records in Memphis for what would be one of the greatest jam sessions ever. That's presented at the CSPS Hall, 7.30 p.m. today, cost is $25 to $55. And these Eastern Iowa briefs in Coralville Play trivia at the library. Put on your thinking cap for another trivia night at 6 p.m. today 
at the Coralville Public Library. There will be prizes, refreshments, and a good time to be had by all. Come by yourself or bring friends. Teams will be created at the beginning of the evening. In Cedar Rapids, the Rotary Club is to give $100,000 to local nonprofit. The Rotary Club of Cedar Rapids announces the second year of the Grand Impact event, which will enlist 50 businesses in the region to collectively raise $100,000 for a local human services nonprofit. This year's Grand Impact will follow the same playbook centered on a May 10 event at Theater Cedar Rapids. Representatives from the 50 contributing businesses that have donated $2,000 will gather to hear from three selected nonprofits who will pitch their unique approach to solving a problem facing the community. Business representatives will then vote, and one nonprofit will walk away with $100,000. The Rotary Club of Cedar Rapids, also known as Downtown Rotary, will accept the application for nonprofits from March 1st to March 22nd. It is open to any human service 501c3 that serves the local community in Cedar Rapids, Marion, Hiawatha, and or Robbins. A panel of judges will narrow the applicant pool to three who will then make their pitch on May 10. In Iowa City, celebrate women who tell our stories, held Thursday online. In recognition of Women's History Month, the Office of Equity and Human Rights will host Celebrating Women Who Tell Our Stories, presented by author Tracy Sorrell from noon to 1 p.m. on Thursday online. Sorrell writes award-winning fiction and nonfiction for young people. Sorrell, who came to writing from a career in law, will share why stories centering on indigenous persons and nations are critical for everyone to know. Sorrell is a two-time Cybert Medal and Orbis Pictus honoree for her nonfiction work. Her first five books received awards from the American Indian Library Association. And in Wellman, Adaptive Sports Iowa is to hold a wheelchair basketball fundraiser. Adaptive Sports Iowa and Iowa's only youth wheelchair basketball team, the Grizzlies, will hold a three versus three wheelchair basketball tournament fundraiser from noon to eight on March 11 at the Wellman Parkside Activity Center, 525 13th Street in Wellman. Proceeds will go toward equipment and facility needs for Adaptive Sports Iowa. It is a nonprofit that provides opportunities for those with disabilities to participate in various sports. People are encouraged to participate. An entry fee is $25 per person, and teams will consist of three to five players. Teams can choose between an early afternoon session from noon to 3.30 or a late afternoon session, 3.45 to 8 p.m. All sessions are limited to eight teams, and each team is guaranteed three games. Teams can sign up for only one session. Wheelchairs will be provided. To sign up, contact Dixie Conrad at 319-863-3032 or DixieConrad56 at gmail.com. And this story by Emily Anderson on the community page, Johnson County UN Chapter hosts International Women's Day event. 
The Johnson County United Nations Association will host its annual International Women's Day event in person this year for the first time since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Night of 1,000 Dinners dates back to 2001, but has seen various changes over the years. This year's event, set for March 8, will offer a buffet of international dishes brought in from local restaurants and catering services and entertainment related to International Women's Day. Money raised from the event will be divided between three local nonprofits, Grow Johnson County, Field to Family, and Great Plains Action Society, and the United Nations World Food Program. The nonprofits to be benefited were decided based on this year's theme for the event, which is the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal 15 life on land. It focuses on sustaining effective uses of land around the world by combating deforestation and encouraging efficient food production. We decided this year as part of our desire to bring more attention locally to the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals that we would pick one as our theme. We've had a theme the last couple of years, but we used language of our own and it wasn't specifically a sustainable development goal, said Barbara Eckstein, president of the Johnson County UN chapter. Other factors involved in choosing the local nonprofits to honor included the fact that they primarily serve Johnson County and the fact that they have significant leadership from women since the event is held on International Women's Day. Eckstein said that while concerns surrounding farming and deforestation are universal issues, they are issues that are greatly benefited when women's voices are involved in finding solutions. Here and certainly around the world, many smallholder farmers, by that I mean farms that raise food for people on a local specific scale, are organizations run by women. So that's a part of our interest in it as part of International Women's Day, Eckstein said. Also, because of many places in the world, women are responsible for cooking and household management, and that involves, in many cases, finding fuel for cooking. So it's important that women are very involved in reforestation because it helps organizations to think through alternative fuels to wood, and it gives them alternatives. Entertainment at the night of 1,000 dinners will include performances by a children's folklorica dance troupe and opera singer Andrew Rene. Each of the local nonprofits being honored will show a video explaining the work that they do. In brief, if you go, it's the night of 1,000 dinners includes an international buffet and entertainment that takes place at 6 p.m. March 8 at the Mercy Park Aquatic Center and Scanlon Gym, 2701 Bradford Drive in Iowa City. Tickets are $25 for community members and $10 for students and can be purchased online. On the Business 380 page, this article highlights roadside service from Red's Gas and Diesel and the stories by Steve Gravel. It's a common sight on a road trip, the semi-trailer rig at the side of the road, its hood up. Along eastern Iowa highways, Mitchell Burheit could be under that hood. I get people rolling in 20, 30 minutes, and I've had people rolling in four or five hours, Burheit said. That's just the nature of the game. 
This is a story about Mitchell Burheit. His address is 3020 Eastern Avenue Northeast in Cedar Rapids. And he has a website, redsgasanddieselllc.com. I've been working on cars and trucks and semis my entire life, he said. My dad was a shop owner. Burheit worked at his father, Brad Burheit's family auto sales and other shops in Cedar Rapids. Brad died in 2019. When he was the owner of the shop, I worked for him, he said. Then I ventured off and did my own thing and found other shops to work for. We're 24-7, but working my full-time job, the best time to get, to get a hold of me is from 5 to 10 p.m., Burheit said. But it goes on beyond that. It's fine. I've had calls in 2 and 3 in the morning. Winter gets crazy, Burheit said. Once I literally lived in my truck for two days straight, it just goes back to back to back. Diesels don't like winter, when wax crystals can develop in the fuel, causing them to stall and even cause engine damage. Finishing up with a look at the weather, Cedar Rapids looking for a high of 46 today and a low of 34. That's well above our normal high, which is 38. The normal low for today is 21. We set a record high of 67 degrees in 2017. The record low of 17 below zero was set in 1962. Sunset tonight is at 5.56 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 6.41 a.m. That gives us 11 hours and 13 minutes of daylight. And we're in the first quarter of the moon phase with moon rise at 11.23 a.m and moon set at 3.38 a.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It's Tuesday, February 28. I'm your reader, Kathleen. You can access a copy of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening, and have a great, safe day.
I'm getting older. Do I need to worry about falling? Yes, you do. Every year, one in four people 65 and older will experience a fall, and many result in serious injury. The majority of falls happen at home, so take a look around. Replace bulbs and add lighting to help you see obstacles. Remove things that can make you trip. Fix uneven steps and floors, and install handrails in bathrooms and on stairs. Consider balance or strength training exercises, which can help with agility. Get your eyes and hearing checked regularly. Changes in your hearing can affect your balance. To learn more, please talk to your doctor about steps you can take to help prevent a fall. You can also visit aarpfoundation.org or medicaremadeclear.com/falls. This message was brought to you by United Healthcare and AARP Foundation.